I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, Radio Days Part 2. Controversial and passionate, for Darren Hinch, broadcasting was always about the public's right to know. He's covered and has been in the middle of some of Australia's biggest stories. And he's done it all without fear and without favour. Mr Hinch, welcome again. Here we go again, yes. This is episode, uh, well, the, the second part of the Radio Days yes. uh, story that we're talking about. And uh, when we last spoke, uh, you were talking about the, the famous interview you did with uh, Malcolm Fraser. Uh, around about that time is when Bob Hawke took over from Bill Hayden. Bill Hayden was dumped as Labor leader because they a drover's dog wouldn't have won or would have won would that have won. election. Would have won. A drover's dog would have won that election. Yeah, they, Malcolm, as I said last week, um, Malcolm called the election to catch the Labor off, off guard and it was in that was... By that same day, Labor dumped John Button, convinced Bill Hayden to step aside. Hawke came in and Hawke ran and beat uh, beat Fraser uh, in, in the election and went on to become one of the most successful prime ministers we've had, what, four terms like that. Uh, he did have he did have a, what he used to call my love affair with the Australian people. He was a larrikin. Uh, he'd reformed, supposedly, um, womaniser, drinker, but he cleaned his act up, up his act. Uh, for be Prime Minister. I think Hayes will see if you don't stop drinking and don't stop screwing around, I'm not coming to Canberra. bit, bit like... Uh, the, the amazing thing about Bob, and this is a story I've heard from a number of people, is he, he was made Father of the Year, I think in Victoria, and the night he was, he was given the award, he was actually in a pub in Carlton and they had to carry him into a taxi because <laughs> he'd been drinking and was totally you know, pissed. Uh, to to get him home. Well, I I, was, I mentioned earlier that I did the, used to do the Bert Newton show sometimes, and uh, the night that um, the night that Hazel Hawke went on air and talked about her daughter's drug problems, I remember saying, "What?" I said to some friend, uh, you know, "Why why didn't Bob do it? He's the prime minister. Why why did they force Hazel to do it?" And uh, I was on Willisey, I think. And I was out at Bert's show with a, a Labor, senior Labor minister. And he said, are you joking? He said, Bob would need an auto-cue to remember his kids' names. And that was from one of his own, own colleagues. But that, around that election, I have to go back a bit further. Because when I joined AW in 79, speaking politics, uh, I was, I'd been long appalled by this electronic media blackout. It was meant to be the 48-hour blackout, which it wasn't. It was actually 66 hours because it was from midnight on the Wednesday through to 6 p.m. on the Saturday when the polls closed. Now, a lot of people are too young to remember this, but and it seems incredible now in the days of social media and instant news. But if you weren't allowed to mention anything political on radio or television, or, uh, and, and of course radio ads were banned as well, political ads as well, um, for, the, for that blackout period. It was just dead. And I remember saying at the time on air, if Harold Holt had drowned during the blackout, you'd, or you wouldn't be able to mention the fact that the Prime Minister had gone. You'd be able to have to say, uh, you know, a, a businessman has died at Portsea. Um, in the, but uh, anyway, so on, the, on the, that election, the 79 state election, it was a Bill Hay, um, uh, uh, Dick Hamer election. I think Clyde Holding was the opposition leader. Probably, uh, yeah, you're right, that's true. So I went on air... 
to prove a point on the Thursday morning, I went on air and didn't give an editorial, didn't say who you should vote for. All I said was, I, I picked up and read from the Australian newspaper. So I'm reading on radio what anybody could read when they bought a newspaper to show how anachronistic and how stupid this whole thing was. So management came down, the Richard Gray, the um, Richard Gray, the general manager, and said, um, this is illegal. Uh, how, how long do you intend to, to do this? I said, oh, for the rest of the morning and then again tomorrow. And so they put on MacArthur Park, as I used to do when I had troubles with the 3AW. And hauled you off air. And hauled me off air, yeah. So, uh, and that was it. And so I then, I, I, I did it, and I, whenever there's an election on, I, I would break it. And and uh, I remember being interviewed after when I broke it, and I remember being interviewed by Mike Willisey. And I used to joke saying, I, I love the fact that all these journos were behind me. I just didn't realise how far behind me they were. Because Willis is interviewing me, and I said to him, Mike, you, you've got a newspaper on your desk. I dare you to hold it up and show us the front page during the blackout. He wouldn't do it. You know. Uh, in the end, uh, after Hawke won that election, uh, I, I had written to every every elected politician on both sides, seeing where they stood, and many of the Liberals didn't answer me. But but to his credit, Hawke then, then wiped it. I mean, you still have a blackout on paid political ads because that means not, no one party can suddenly blitz the airwaves and radio and television in the last 48 hours. Um, but elect, elect, uh, just uh, electoral comment is gone, and I was, I was very proud of it. What, what was the idea of it in the first place? It was brought in from memory... And I haven't thought about it for a long time. I think it was brought in by Labor because they thought that the Libs would have, have more money, as they often did, and nationals, and they could, in the last couple of days before an election, could perhaps launch a scare campaign of some sort, put out some erroneous uh, story that couldn't be uh, sufficiently knocked down. The way that, ironically, the way that Labor did with Medi-Scare of elections ago um, and, the, and Libs have done that too um, but that was the original idea was it to, to, to stop it and then it just it just stayed there I, know, I used to talk to Brian White when he was on radio about it and he used to rail against it and say this is blackout is wrong said, well do something about it break it and in the end I mean I know I've, I've got in trouble with this before saying you are entitled to break a bad law but there is a big but you must be prepared to take the consequences if that means being fined or going to jail, being arrested, then that's a consequence. But if you think a law is wrong, then you're entitled to test it. And this one, by, by showing just how stupid it was, by just reading from a newspaper, which was illegal. And so um, blind people couldn't read a newspaper um, for two days in election. It was, it was literally a no man's land for, for more than 48 hours. Darren Ash, Wednesday, 1983. Mm. Bushfires, Victoria. You were at three AW yeah. at the time. What What are your memories of? Oh, that it was day? it was so tragic. Uh, but the spirit of Victorians was a bit. What we saw again with Black Saturday. Uh, my I'd lost a lot uh, at my farm at a fire two weeks before in the massive ranges. Um, I lost barns and tractors and everything. But I, luckily for me, my house didn't burn, even though sap dripped out of the walls. It was so hot. And eggs cooked on and burst on my kitchen table. I had eggs inside. They just exploded. But my house, the windows held and the house didn't burn. The house above me went and the house below me went, but we, we were saved. Um, on the day of Ash Wednesday, I went on air early and, uh, 
and ran the most, uh, how would you call it, brutal fundraising campaign. I just said to people, give me money. We, you know, we, we've got, you know, it's very nice for you to give clothes and bits and pieces and people gave old clothes and things. I said, but give me money. The people have lost their houses, have lost their bank books, have lost everything uh, and we need money. And, and uh, they did. I remember a, a, a policeman was on holidays came in and sat in, the, in, in our reception area all day to, to guard the money. And people, I said, you don't send checks, just get, bring us cash. Get out of the bank, bring us cash. And you may remember it, I think we raised $11 million. It was extraordinary. And to their credit, other radio stations like 3DB, when they got calls from their listeners, they'd said, look, especially if you call 3AW, they're on top of this. And it became this, it became this amazing time of Victorian generosity. And Aussies do that, a lot of causes, you know, um, like the GoFundMe campaigns and things. That They will dig deep. They will dig deep. What uh, a lot of people, I guess, might remember from that is the uh, uh, Murray Nickel. Mm. His house burnt down. He was on the phone live to, I think, 5, uh, 5DN in Adelaide, yeah. describing his house. Burning Being down, burnt yeah. down. Murray Nickel, yeah. yeah. He replaced me actually on in, in mornings. Uh, they didn't they didn't move. Mitchell had filled in for me while I was in jail. They took him off the night shift, but they should have put then they should have put Neil into um mornings then. Your relationship with Neil Mitchell, because uh, he was at the Herald. Yeah, he was here with the Herald. your radio program. He did he did my program every morning at five to twelve. I'd say I'd say well, the first issue of the Herald just uh, landed on the transom and uh, Neil would come on and tell us what was in it for five minutes. And we had a very good relationship. Um, then he replaced me when I, when I was in jail. And I had a lot of people who went on to have big careers in radio replace me. I had John Yost and Mark Day and se- several others, um, Doug Ayton. Anyway, um, Mitchell and I, when we became... Uh, we sort of became... Uh, Were your mates? Not really. No, we we sort of knew each other. We never friend, never really friends. We, um, but we, we 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 did drift even further apart when he was doing mornings, nice doing drive. You know, and we had some good head to head clashes over a few things. I remember once he impugned my integrity or something, and I said, "I'll put, I'll, I'll go live with you, Neil, and put my integrity up against yours any day you like." And he he declined, but. And then he reached a stage with, and with other people, he wouldn't talk to them and he passed them in the corridor. Very strange. I will say, though, in recent years, uh, when I became a senator, uh, we became, uh, we, we, I mean, now if I'm on his program, we, we have a, a, a good relationship, we have a chat, etc., etc. This brings me to uh, the egos of radio people. Now, you've always been accused of having a, a, a big ego. Uh, in 1985, I think it was, there was a war and it was started when Kerry Packer hired Brian White yeah. to move over to 3AK and 2UE in Sydney and organise this Melbourne-Sydney network radio mm. station. Uh, and that started the Great Radio The Great Radio War, war. that's true. Now, he, he took Brian White across to 3AK and, uh, and he took everybody virtually except me. Uh, I told later on the reason he didn't take me was that Packer didn't want me. Uh, so. Would you have gone? Uh, no. Would you have gone? No, no. Uh, I just, I, 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 look, I was happy at AW and, and it was, no. But the thing was, it, it was never going to work, this, this national radio dream that Brian had. Uh, two things. One was that, I'll tell you the, the smaller one first. One was that the day before they started, 
this. And he had Don Lane from Sydney doing an hour in the afternoons. And I remember the first show he said, and hello down there, you guys in Melbourne. That was really well, in the imagine a Melbourne audience. He started talking about Sydney basketball. Um, and Negus did 8 till 10 or something. He did the mornings. And he started his first day or some dreary thing. But what they didn't know is the day before, the Sunday before, uh, Jackie and I went to um, Negus's house in Balmain and had a long, long lunch with him and got him very pissed and so he was fairly jaded by the time he got his first day started. But the bigger one, which became a lasting fight, a feud, was with Blackers and me, with John Blackman. And uh, a couple of days, about the day after they'd gone, he, Blackers appears on the uh, page one of the Herald, the Melbourne Herald. He, he had been on Breakfast. Breakfast he, was, he was with, doing the Breakfast show with he, Bruce Mansfield. That's right. And there was some issue between the two, and yeah. that's why John well, I, wanted to leave. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was the money, and Brian convinced them all they should go, and Mark Day, and they all, all went. Um, but anyway, Blackers appears on um, Blackers appears on uh, uh, on the Herald front page. A picture of him looking very sad, which now the euphemism for hungover, right? Because I knew he'd been the night before, and uh, he's given this long interview, and he said the reason he left Three AW was because Three AW had lost its soul, and I let it sit for about a day, let it you know just percolate for a, percolate for a little while, and then I went on here for the eight thirty pull through, and I just said Three AW has lost its soul. I said, and I listed some of the things AW had done for John, John over the years, you know, put him up in hotels overseas and helped him out, loaned him money to pay a tax bill. And I won't get it all now because at one stage he threatened legal action against AW. But I then went on my editorial and I said, I hadn't lost a soul when it did such and such. Hadn't lost a soul when it did such and such. I said, 3AW hasn't lost its soul. It's lost its arsehole. <laughs> and and Bert, I remember you, hearing it there and live as it went to air, and it was the most powerful editorial I've ever heard anyone do. And it basically knocked him out, I think. You yeah, know, he, yeah, he, he was damaged by he, it. He claimed it destroyed his career. Uh, and he, I remember once, one day, he turned up, at a, he knew we were having a rat pack lunch at the Golden Gate. He turned up there and came running inside. My, my family, his sister was visiting from New Zealand, and suddenly Blackman ran in, ran upstairs, and, and was, you know, ranting incoherently. And then he ran downstairs again. I went out of the car, to, I thought, I'd better go and see it. He's, he's crying and banging his head on the steering wheel, you know. So it did hurt him, but I mean, it was just, he, he, he started. I mean, I since then, he said, We've buried the hatchet so many times, the garden's getting rusty. <laughs> <laughs> Look, he's a wonderful guy. I've interviewed yeah, him a couple of times the best, the, One of the best ad-libbers in the world. Absolutely. Beautiful voice and uh, very, very funny. Just uh, in, his, in his big days in radio in the 80s, he was must uh, to listen to. Oh, and Dickie um, Knee and all that, and hey, hey. And yeah, yeah all, all that stuff was just uh, wonderful to, to listen to. You now have a good relationship with yeah, him. We do, yeah, we do, we yeah. do. Look, I could, I, this is a grown-up growing up podcast I can tell the story how clever they were with timing with him with Blackers and Uncle Roy I remember listening one morning I thought how'd you get away with that they were they were talking something came up about Uncle Roy um, standing on a train platform right and somebody said oh be careful be very careful a train may come along and you'll get sucked off <laughs> there's a pause and after a while you hear Blackman say come on train <laughs> 
all in the timing. <laughs> that, that, that all uh, happened uh, not because it was planned. Uh, it just seemed to happen. Bruce Mansfield came in to do a few yeah. little things and then it just expanded. And, and Uncle there. Roy became bigger and bigger and bigger, you know. Because Uncle Roy was really Norman Banks. Yes, that's right, that's right. And then Darren James replaced Blackest, didn't he, with Uncle Roy, and they kept the Uncle Roy character. And uh, the thing was, there were so many shades of the real Bruce Mansfield in Uncle Roy too. I mean, his legendary meanness. I mean, he wouldn't shout in a shark attack, you know. And so that sort of stuff, that came out. But he was a wonderfully quirky character with oh, all yeah. of his little idiosyncrasies. I really liked Bruce. He was Do you know what I've discovered? I think he was younger than me. Is that right? I mean, always he was always old to me, but Bruce was... Like, he used to say, I remember, because he's so conservative, but they say about Richard Nixon, he was born 62 years ago in a blue suit. And uh, <laughs> and Mansfield was a bit like that, you know. Uh, Darren, in 1987, mm. you went to jail. And you went to jail because you... Uh, uh, Breached uh, uh, suppression order. Suppression order. Yeah. I, I named involving. Two, yeah, I, I named two serials child sex offenders, uh, serial sex offenders. I named them on the steps of Parliament House, and four thousand other people too. Sorry, nineteen eighty-seven. I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, Michael, oh, that was, oh, sorry, Michael Glennon. That was, yeah, that was sorry. That was the the Glennon case. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was because yeah, Pamela Graham was I mentioned before was worked for, was working for me as an investigative reporter, and. Uh, she received information about Glennon. He ran a martial arts studio in the city and he was running a, um, a camp for kids in Lancefield, a lot of Aboriginal kids. He'd already done a year's jail for raping this nine, ten-year-old girl and yet he was still a priest and still running this, this camp. And so I named him and was hit with a Supreme Court, uh, contempt of court charge and I had more information and followed up again two days later a day or two days later. So I got three charges in the end. Uh, look, I knew what the consequence could be, but as I've said before, I went I, mean, I went to the Premier, I went to the Police Commissioner, I went to the Police Minister, and, and they just said things like, oh, leave it to the courts. Well, he wasn't going to be in court for another six months at least, and it was proven years later uh, that he committed more offences at, at Lansfield. So he was still molesting kids up there at the time uh, that we that we did it. So I, I remember the day you were arrested. You were at the Flower Drum. Yeah. It was a Friday afternoon, yeah. and it was all over three AW because <laughs> they had reporters everywhere. You know, <laughs> describing how you were taken out of the Flower Drum and arrested. What are your memories of uh, everything? I, um, I I remember. For some reason, I'd drawn a lot of money out of the bank and I had about five, $600 in my pocket, which was very silly to be taken to jail. Um, I remember that um, Andrew Peacock was there, uh, um, Pete Steedman was there, Neil Mitchell was there, Jackie was there. Uh, and It was like the last lunch of the a last lunch, yeah. Man. I did an awful joke at Gilbert Lau, the owner's expense. I said, the, the hearty man had a condemned meal. Um, but I, then the sheriff came in and I shook his hand out of courtesy and he's very nice he said oh Mr Hinch he said uh, I don't think handcuffs will be necessary I said well thank you and then we walked out to this absolutely amoeba of media and stuff and ironically I look like I am in handcuffs because I have a habit of holding my hands together often when I'm when I'm walking or talking and uh, it looked like I am cuffed and but it, Jackie Weaver showed her true colours that day as we were walking out of this huge media scrum the photographer the cameraman walking backwards in front of us fell over 
And Jackie stopped and picked him up, you know, so, uh, darling girl. But there we were. Um, and so I went off to, in the paddy wagon and uh, taken off to, uh, to Pentridge in, in Peacow. Um, and ironically, as we, uh, we went through the back door at Pentridge, the big roller door, as we went through the back door, uh, the guard in the box, the box gave me a thumbs up. And 20, 30 years later, I met him. He, he said, do you remember when the first day you went to prison? Or first time? I said, yeah. He said, do you remember the guard who gave you a thumb? I said, I do remember a guard gave me a thumbs up. We went through the back door. He said, that was me. And I said, well, that's so sweet. And he reminded me the last time, you know, and this is quite disconcerting, you're being stripped naked and body searched as you're going in to meet or you're going in or coming out from meeting guests. They strip, and then they, they strip you naked and then they put a one-piece suit on you and a padlock on the back of your neck. And, but it's very disconcerting when the, the prison guard who's telling you to lift your tackle is saying, whispering in your ear, I support everything you do, Darren. Support everything you do. <laughs> your, your first night uh, in jail was at Pentridge. Yeah. One of those old cells? You know, One of those like old cells at Pentridge. Sort of uh, cell. with, with a, uh, it was a two-man cell. Uh, the guy below me in the bed, he took the bed below. I wouldn't argue with him. He was in for murder. Had done about 15, 17 years. You know who he was? No, I don't remember now. Were you were you feeling day? You know, were you, were no, you, but no. The only annoyed, not annoyed me most of all was I'm in the upstairs bunk, right? And he smoked all night, and I hate smoking, and I had to hold my pillow over my face as a sort of a as a sort of a, uh, a filter. And the other thing is, there's a toilet in the in there. But, I mean, you wouldn't use it. You might have a pee, but you don't want to use it while somebody else is there. So so they're watching, you know, you can watch each other. Oh, yeah. Do your toilet. Yeah. Business. But the thing was, he left pretty early. Did, did you he... talk? No, hardly at all. Uh, he um, he knew who I was, but that was all. He he left early, and, I, and they they kept me locked up for a, for a while until everybody else was out in the remand yard, and then they moved me uh, around. And uh, so I, I really hardly saw any other... In our prisons. And then you went to... Uh, Morwell. Morwell Prison. Yeah. Now, you were there for, what, two weeks? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your memories of that? That was... Um, well, it was an old immigration camp years and years ago. And it's now been... You would not have ever been there. I was down there campaigning uh, a while ago, and we went to the prison to have a look. I hadn't been back in since 87. And it's gone. There's not... There's nothing signed there that it ever existed. Cows are sort of grazing in the paddocks and there's no sign of this, this prison or the detentions of the uh, uh, immigration centre ever existed. Um, I, shared a, um, I shared a cell there, a hut, with a guy who's up in on, on money fraud. Uh, ironically, I never let on, but I, I sort of recognised him. He'd once, shows how weird thing, six degrees of separation, he'd once, um, he once rented my apartment in South Melbourne and dudded me for some money. You know, but I had been so long ago, he didn't think I'd recognise him and I didn't mention it. Um, but in there, uh, I, people said, I, I bet he gets special treatment. Well, I did get special treatment, but it was the wrong way. Um, in the mornings, a couple of inmates said, oh, we're going for a jog. You want to come for a jog outside the prison? I said, oh, sure. And I start to put my sneakers on and my tracksuit, start to jog and get a tap on the shoulder. They said, no, 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 you're not allowed. They didn't want the image of Hinch outside jail. And they also had banned me from going past a certain hut because if I walked past that hut, uh, a television lens could pick me up walking around the jail. So so I was, that way I was uh, given the wrong sort of special treatment. 
Darren, uh, I think it was late 87, you left 3AW to go to television. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Scase hired you. That's going to be another podcast. Oh, so yeah. we'll talk about uh, the the media tycoons you've you've known and worked with. Um, but I want to now go to uh, when you came to Three AW. Well, twice actually, three times you you, you were there. You were there uh, in the eighties. You then replaced Bruce and Phil when Bruce Mansfield got caught for cash for comment. That's right. Yeah, which you did. Uh, for about a year or two ago. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I remember the opening of the Sydney Olympic Games. Yeah. You and I were both working that night. Yeah. And that thing that was supposed to come up was it sort of stuck there yeah. for a while. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I, go on. I, I actually, I was really proud of this. I actually tipped that Cathy Freeman would be the one who had with the, the final flame because... She, all the other bits of people carrying on areas, she made some excuse like say, oh, I didn't want to do such and such. And I thought, this is weird. Kathy Freeman's being kept away, and, and it was her. But um, Jackie's uh, dear friend, Richard Werrett, uh, was involved in, the, uh, in that stuff for the games. And, and especially that last final moment when she has the torch and she's standing in the water and stuff like that. And he said later on, he sat there, Petrified, that, oh God, trying to will it to happen, will it happen? Because it wasn't going to happen. And finally, I mean, she seemed to stand there for minutes. It probably wasn't, but to all of us, it seemed like an eon, didn't it? It added to the drama of yeah. the occasion, I thought. Yeah. Uh, so the third time you were at Three AW, one of the big controversies was Graham Kennedy died. This mm. TV performer, lo- much loved figure in yep. in Melbourne, great, great, yeah. uh, from the sixties. You said he died of AIDS. No, I said that uh, he died of pneumonia, but I said that uh, the, all the signs say that he had AIDS. He didn't die of AIDS, but he had AIDS. And I actually didn't break the story. Graham Blundell did in The Australian, but that was totally ignored, maybe because not many people read it. But he, but he actually mentioned that, um, that Kennedy had withdrawn a lot and become very reclusive at uh, Bowral because he had Carposi sarcoma which are the black spots that, uh, that people with advanced cases of AIDS actually get. Um, now, one of um, uh, Kennedy's ex-boyfriends, Rob Asprey, who worked for 3AW and Channel 9, he, he had told me about this and he agreed, he was working on a book and he agreed to come on air that afternoon at four o'clock and, and talk about the, his relationship with Kennedy. And he, he himself had AIDS. Yes. Uh, he was living, I think, overseas in some for, Asian He was living country. in Th- Thailand, I think, for a long time. And and, then and he was needing money to uh, fund his treatment, yeah. is what I understand. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he told you yeah. that Graham Kennedy had HIV. Yes. Yeah. On the basis of that, you went with that story, or did yeah. you have other information? No, it was, it was, and that Alan Blundell's backup that he had, the, the telltale black spots. Um, so I went with it, um, and uh, it, it caused it got really a, a, a terrible reaction because I, I know I have this old corny old line about all history owes the dead is the truth, and uh, if you find out something about me and when I die, go for it. Um, and and also it wasn't it wasn't a criticism. I'm just stating what I thought what I thought was a fact. Um, but then Aspie at the last minute for some reason decided not to do it. He'd also sent me a copy, of some, apart from that, he'd sent me some parts, proof parts of his book, which later changed. I found out he changed the book. He became 
But there was a lot of anger directed toward you oh, yeah. from uh, Graham Kennedy's uh, friends, yeah. Nolene Brown. Nolene Brown, who, uh, who, who had been a friend of mine. I mean, Nolene and I had been on uh, Beauty and the Beast together, and I was very fond of her, you know. And uh, she was probably Kennedy's closest friend, I, I, would, I would say. What I never understood, though, was... Uh, uh, w- I guess it was the time there was some sort of shame attached. Yeah, I, well, I, that wasn't anything. I that's the thing that annoyed me a bit was it. I think uh, look, it was that around that time. I mean, I had a I had somebody work for me as a driver, and his uh, he he had AIDS. I didn't know it. Um, I did comment on how much weight he had lost, and he said, "Yeah, I'm on this amazing I'm on this amazing diet." Um, but he had told me of a friend of his. Who died of AIDS, and his his family was so ashamed that they didn't have a funeral. The old lion buried like a junkyard dog. You know, they did not have a funeral for him. Uh, and I used to be uh, I explained it away. Eventually, I used to be a bit uh, irky about um, Bryce Courtney. His son died of AIDS, but Bryce always made in every interview he ever did. He wrote a book. I think something like April Fool's Day or something like that. He wrote a very a book about his son, but he always in interviews he always said medically acquired AIDS. He always made that distinction that you know my son wasn't homosexual, and I I thought that was a bit strange. But you're right. Back at that time, there was a um, there was a feeling among a lot of people. So, was there any regret from you about having said that Graham Kennedy? No, I didn't. I, I was, but I, I, I was close. I came to being fired from Three AW. Um, I did, from memory, we did put to air a, um, a clarification. It wasn't really an apology, but it was a clarification. Who, who was going to fire you, and why? Um, I suspect. I suspect. Well, Mike. I'm sure Brian had gone by then. Um, it's probably Peters. Mike Peters was probably the editor. No, I'm oh, sorry, no. the, the manager. No, uh, it was Graham Mott. Was Motty there then? I, I was there at that oh, stage. Oh, okay. And, and it was Graham Mott. The other big issue that happened. Well, speaking of getting, yeah, I'll get. To, I know where you're coming from. I met Graham Mott, so the David Hooks case. Yes. And Motty was the boss then because uh, after the David Hooks story, which I'll get to, um, several people, big stars at AW, went to Mott and insisted that I be sacked. And Mottry's credit said to them, and what I tell the papers tomorrow as to why I've sacked him, because he told the truth. And the background of this is this. Where David Hooks was involved in that um, in that altercation at the at late night at a pub and got punched and hit his head and, and died. Several things happened, and I was unaware of much of it, I found out later. Um, there was interviews with, with eyewitnesses and neighbours about it because he was a very famous cricketer and an AW commentator. For our some of the interviews we went to were on Three AW, bits were edited out about the fact that his girlfriend was with him at the time. I didn't know he and his wife weren't together. And I found this out later on too, uh, and I found out from the then program manager that on the day that he died, that his uh, his separated wife and his girlfriend were in separate rooms at the hospital. Uh, that his girlfriend, who worked, I think, for Cricket Australia, and he had been looking, they'd been together for a long time, had been looking for a house to buy at the time. And uh, I didn't know any of this, but the sports department all knew it and management had known it for a long, long time, apparently. 
And all I didn't, I, 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 like everybody, put my condolences out and, and how sad it was the way he died. The day of his funeral, the day of his funeral in Adelaide, uh, I said, I gave a tribute to, to Hooksy. I said seven words that was taken as um, everybody took umbrage. I said, there is another woman grieving out there because she was being ignored. The Herald Sun was running Brady Bunch pictures almost every day of Hooksy and his wife and kids. Uh, it's a bit like the Adele Co thing where they're trying to create an image. Uh, Packer was wanting to start a, uh, a, 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 a fund, an organ donor fund in Hooks's name. They wanted, Channel 9 wanted to preserve the, 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 the happy family group. And I just said, there's another woman grieving out there. Um, every, most of the executives at AW were in Adelaide for the funeral. And by the time I got to air, they were at a wake in a local pub. Uh, just after Peter Troll went out, I, I discovered later how it happened. Uh, the boss's secretary held the radio phone to the radio, so he could hear. This is Clark Forbes. He could hear the editorial go to air. Within a minute of it going to air, when I went through a commercial break, the red phone rang, and a voice just said, "You despicable C." And I hung up. Um, and that's where they all went to Motty and said, Graham Mott and said, oh, he has to be sacked for this. And he said, well, he told the truth. We all knew it. We all knew it. We'd known it for months. This other lady, mm. uh, she had contacted you. Is that correct? Or? No, no. Somebody had, yeah. People had, but I've never spoken to her personally. I know her name. I'm not going to use it now. Um, but, yeah, I, I had been contacted and had it confirmed. And then once it was once it was out before I went to air with it, Everybody, said, well, everybody, everybody knew that. I said, well, why is the Herald Sun running these Brady Bunch pictures every day? The argument was, uh, you know, he died. What was going to be gained by saying this, by revealing this? It was personal well, information. Well, Do you... You obviously don't accept that. No, I don't. I, I don't he's, he's, he's a public. He's a public person. I'm sure that um, sometime he went back through all his all his um, radio commentaries. Uh, Hooks has probably probably uh, uh, announced somebody's indiscretion about something. You know when he was doing it. You know um, it was. I mean, when you're a public figure, you're a public figure. And the thing was, this was not true. The papers and the radio station were putting out this picture that was not true. And and uh, and I'd said if it if he if he'd worked for another radio station, I'm sure probably our breakfast guys would have done the story and said, "You're being fed a, a load of crap here, everybody." That's not true at all, and it wasn't. The David Hooks uh, stuff, uh, Darren, did that damage, you know, relationships or? Uh, well, it didn't damage my relationship with the, with, the, with Graham Mott because he was very honest and very straight. And just said, you know, I, I can't sack Hinch for telling the truth. What about the other people? Oh yeah, I, I don't think. Um, uh, well, I've never had a great relationship with the breakfast team with um, with Ross Stevenson and, and Burns. But now, why, why was that? I don't know, but I, but that probably cemented the uh, the, the the antipathy. Uh, and and Forbes that didn't that didn't come back. But I had to laugh years ages later. We had my farewell party at a pub down in uh, Docklands, I think it was. And uh, I remember in my speech saying, pointing at, 
at uh, Shane Healy, who is the, the general manager, and Clark Forbes, the program manager. And I said, you know, in four years' time, here's his hunch. You probably won't be here, you won't be here, and I'll be back. And about three years later, I was back. <laughs> I remember you once said about Clark Forbes that uh, he used to wear his pants too high. Yeah. And you said you never trust a man who wears pants too high. When we were kids, we used to say, yeah, your socks should have a party and invite your trousers down. <laughs> now, tell me the day you interviewed Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. It was your, uh, you know, uh, Neil Armstrong had just died. That's right. You came off here happy with the interview, feeling like you'd done a wonderful job, and you had. They called you. Who called you in, and what did they say to you? I think it was Clark Forbes called me in to. Uh, they said, "Oh, Forbes wants to see you," and I thought they were going to congratulate me on the Buzz Aldrin interview because it was the only interview he did in Australia. And I think I think uh, he was there, and I think um, Healy would have been there. Yeah, and they just said, "Oh, we've tried. We've decided to go in a different direction, Darren. You know, uh, and you, like you're fired." Um, and one of the reasons they gave was that they wanted to become more digital and more, you know, with it. You know, I had more Twitter followers than anybody at AW, and I think Shane Healy had one, you know. <laughs> but um, I, I, look, I think there'd be a bit of undermining going on because when I was A, off sick and B, under house arrest for five months, uh, Elliot filled in for me. And I think a lot of work was done then to. And they couldn't sack me the minute I got back from a transplant, so they got, I did another 12 months. What also happened was Graham Mott had left. Now, he was one of your biggest That's right, supporters. yes. Yeah, he'd gone off to, the, to Sydney, yeah. Do you think the David Hook situation played a factor in it? Oh, it possi possibly did. It possibly did. But I look, there were other factors involved. I remember when, um, when I was being hired by 3RW, uh, I had meetings with, uh, with Mott and also with, uh, uh, with Clark Forbes, and Forbes says, there's one thing, though, Darren, that worries me. You don't have to keep going on with this pedophile thing, are you? And I sort of said, well, if it comes up, it comes up. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to tell a caller that we've had our quota of child molesting stories this month. And I, he said, well, I think the public's sick of it. Well, the public's not sick of it. The public wants, in general, the public wants this National Public Register of Convicted Sex Offenders as soon as possible. You know? So I thought he was, he was out of touch. And anyway, I would have done it anyway, so it's... I, I want to finish with this story because I want to know the details from you. Um, in 2002, Stanza Marnik was hired yeah. by Tony Bell. <laughs> and you were hired by Graham Mott. Yes. To do the same shift at the same time. Yeah. What happened? Uh, what happened was that um, I was a pro, I was at 3AK and I was approached. Uh, by, through an intermediary by Graham Mott. Actually, the intermediary was Darren James. And, uh, and so Mott arranged to meet me at the James's house. And uh, we, went, we went out there one night and we had a meal and had a chat and uh, we did a deal. And we actually discussed how, how long, when would we announce it and how he would announce it and da 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 da. So I said, like, I'm going back to do the afternoon shift at uh, uh, the drive shift at. Uh, uh, because replacing Steve Price it was, wasn't it? Yeah. And apparently, um, Mott had a phone call next day, I think, from Tony Bell. And uh, and some, I don't know who raised it, but somebody said, well, we've sorted out, we've sorted out the, uh, the drive problem. 
And Marty said, yep, we have. And, uh, and, and she said, yep, I said, I'll just run it by you. And he said, no, I've, I've solved it. I've hired Zamanic. <laughs> and Marty said, what? He said, I've hired Stan Zamanic. It's done deal. So Marty had to call me and say, sorry, it's, uh, you know, he's, he's my boss and he's decided. And, and we knew it would be a disaster. You know, and it didn't work. I mean, Stan would sit down here with a book of insults in front of him and pick one out to use that day. You know, you putrid pile of pigeon droppings. He'd have it written down in front of him, didn't he? Didn't <laughs> well, even have it in his well, mind. He, he, had a, he had a little laptop <laughs> uh, computer next to him yeah. and he had categories, you know, like uh, nuclear energy or, uh, or whatever it was. And if someone rang up about nuclear energy, he'd go to that <laughs> category and there were about 10 or 15 points... Oh, put in there about nuclear energy. So I'd be very learned. His brain was in his computer. Good <laughs> That's where it was. Darren, we've got a million things to uh, talk uh, about. At some stage, I want to talk to you about the Underworld War. Oh, yeah. And the famous interview you did with Mick Gatto. Mick and Carl Williams. And Carl Williams. <laughs> but we've run out of time. Okay. Uh, Till next week. Thanks again. Thanks, mate.